Hey, this is Connecticut Voice Podcast with Kyone Wolf. I'm Kyone Wolf. John Stone is, among other things, the Chief Technology Officer for Kelser Corporation, which offers IT consulting and support in Connecticut and Massachusetts. When I walked into his office, I noticed helicopters. Photos of helicopters, photos from helicopters, model helicopters. This guy not only loves technology and security, but he loves helicopters. More on that later and what it has to do with his job. I started off our interview by asking him why it's important for him to be out at Kelser Corporation. Because it's uh, very much a, a family environment. So uh, all the employees here interact a lot at work, and then we interact a lot uh, socially outside of and after work. So it would be like really, really awkward and hard to like have that social interaction if I was kind of like walling off a part of my life and nobody knew about it, I guess. When did you know? It's funny because I, I, you know, this question's coming. Yeah, yeah. But it's a standard one. It's totally is, and it's funny because maybe someday the question will be, "When did you know that you were straight?" Yeah. Um, but when did you know you were different? How old were you? What was the circumstance? I started to know maybe something was a little different when I was really, really little. You know, maybe even like six or seven or eight. It was like very, very early, and certainly there was no you know, name for it or, or thing to call it. But uh, I guess I, I probably knew something at, uh, at, at that point. And then, you know, just uh, over the years, it kind of became uh, more rather than uh, less, less apparent for me. You know, I think through um, high school and college, um, you know, although I pretty much clearly knew what it was and, and what the situation was at, at that point, it just wasn't something I wanted to talk about, deal with, have to figure out what to, uh, you know, what to do about. So I just didn't kind of kept it off to the side. So when did you do something about it? Uh, I was, I think 29 or 30. So maybe late in life, uh, compared to some other people, but everybody on their own schedule, I guess. Um, it was after I had, uh, worked at, uh, travelers for maybe, uh, six or seven years. And it was just, uh, like I wasn't able to be so engrossed and busy in my work that I could ignore it. You know, I think I had uh, I had used my work as a as a thing to keep me busy and occupied, so there wasn't uh, free time or free energy to to have to deal with that. And it just got to a point where it was like, you know, this is kind of crazy. Let's uh, figure out what to do and uh, and uh, you know start uh, start talking to other people about it. Since coming out is something that you do. Over and over for the rest of your life. Yes. That means that you sometimes have conversations, especially when you're first coming out, that you're not really good at having, or you don't know how to say the words, or, you know, depending on the audience, exactly how to keep safe and also come out. And so what are some ways that you would have really liked people to receive your coming out? I think the most important thing that, without exception, I was looking to hear was that me coming out didn't change someone's perception of who I was. Like, there's there's still the part of me that you knew before this, and, you know, I'm still there afterwards. Still the same John. Yeah, exactly. Now, I notice you have a wedding ring on. I do, yes. Tell me about your husband. Um, my husband, uh, Bernard, we've been together since... Uh, 2002. How'd you meet? Online. It was uh, kind of uh, early in uh, in the uh, online dating uh, 
arena and uh, uh, he had a uh, an ad out on uh, Yahoo. So Yahoo is Yahoo. how far back we're going. Exactly. All right. That's how far okay. Back we're going. And what was it like when you first met? And in real life, IRL, as the kids say. Uh, in real life, um, you know, so we met for uh, coffee the first time. So it was it was like uh, super casual. I think I talked a lot. I think I was probably really uh, really nervous, but um, you know, there was that initial spark, and it all happened from there. Now, when you think back to being five or six, yep. Did you picture, oh, someday I'm going to get married? probably to a woman because that's how these things go. But now that you've found someone who you love completely, you've gotten married, (laughs) if you could go back and talk to that six-year-old self and give him a message, what would it be? I think it would be to uh, let happen what seems like the the right thing to to happen and uh, just kind of uh, go with uh, what you feel and uh, don't try to... Uh, fight it or or avoid it, um, and it'll uh, you know it'll work out in the end. I tell myself, you know, only you will know when the time is right. Uh, you know, when the the circumstances are right, when the person is right. Along those lines, your romantic future didn't end up quite like maybe you expected it to as a child. True. Uh, it ended up even better, and so here you are at Kelser. Yep. For for people who have no idea what Kelser does, what is, what do you do here? Sure. So we're uh, Kelser's uh, managed uh, IT managed service provider um, and uh, professional services provider company. So we help um, small, medium, and large businesses with uh, their IT needs. We keep them secure. We keep their network up. We keep their workstations working. Uh, we make sure they have the uh, the latest and uh, best technology to run their business. And what are some of the responsibilities that you specifically have at Kelser? Sure. So I'm the chief technology officer here. So uh, I run uh, all of our uh, services and uh, delivery organizations. So um, all the uh, things that we have to have uh, people do here at Kelser technology-wise for our clients, um, they all roll up to me. Give me some specifics. One of our clients having uh, problems with uh, Wi-Fi in one of their um, one of their offices. So I had a conversation with them, kind of figured out a little bit uh, what they needed to have done, um, and uh, worked with the team here to get the right resources lined up to go out, do some looking and investigating, and then we'll uh, recommend a, a fix and a solution. So when I think about the work you do, my mind immediately goes to people hacking computers malware scams yep. is that a big part of what you do uh, definitely so it's um uh, we try to do a lot of uh, proactive work uh, to keep people more secure and try to prevent those uh, those attacks um, from happening um, through education and technology and then the third uh, leg on the stool and and the worst is like if we have to go in and help somebody fix stuff after something bad has uh, has happened so what would you say you know I I have a production company and I work on an iMac on my kitchen table <laughs> and so I think oh you know I've, I work as an Ethernet cord and it's Comcast and I'm probably fine versus I think about a giant corporation that has, you know, a uh, hundred terminals, a thousand terminals and all these employees and everything's really complicated and you've got an email system and you've got an internal FTP, LMNOP. I don't know exactly what <laughs> FTP stands for, right? <laughs> so when it comes to smaller businesses, yep. what might compel them to think they need to invest in some sort of security? I ask people to think about, um, you know, what their business is, you know, what you as a business, what do you do to to make uh, money? Well, 
I do interviews, I edit recordings, you know, my recordings and my interviews are, you know, how I derive my livelihood. And then I say, well, you know, what would happen if at the worst possible time, like uh, right before your deadline to, to submit things to your station or whoever's broadcasting them, all of a sudden you can't get to any of your data and it's, it's all lost. So it's like, Envision the worst case scenario, and then you kind of get an idea of of how important it is to to deal with it. And then we can look at ways to make uh, your environment more secure, so something impacting your data is less likely to happen. So, like in a in a small business, um, even a business of one person, we'd look pretty carefully at uh, how your network at home is set up. What is the perimeter security look like on that? How is that router from Comcast set up? Um, is there software we could uh, put on uh, your Mac that uh, made it harder to accidentally click on a bad web link that could infect um, your PC? Uh, is there backup technology we could put into place so you always have a safe copy of your work uh, somewhere that um, you know a, a virus or an infection couldn't get to it? So, that's so as opposed we... to like every now and then I'll remember to drag and drop my newest stuff into an external hard drive, but between those times I'm... That's just sitting out there. Yeah, exactly. Pray. Yeah, so so uh, so less praying and more uh, more making frequent backup copies and being proactive about about how you keep your environment uh, tidy and secure. What are common pitfalls people fall for? You'd mentioned a couple of times links that people get sent. What what are they looking at when they click on them, and what are ways that they can figure out on their own intuitively or with some sort of action? Okay, this is not cool. And then what do they do? trust your gut. So when you're when you're looking at a at an email that has a link in it or is asking you to, you know, to click here to do something like does that even make sense? Like are you involved in in business with the company if they're asking you to click here to accept your order? It's something from Amazon saying, you know, you need to return your your whatever that you ordered and and click here to do it like have I ordered anything from Amazon? Um, is it is it this thing? So like a little bit of uh, healthy doubt and suspicion about uh, what you're being asked to do would kind of be uh, step number one, I think. Um, then there's some more technical things you can do, um, like in your browser or email program, if you hover over the, the link, um, like what does it look like and does the name of the link make sense based on... It'll pop up. Yeah, who the email is supposed to be from. Like if it's an Amazon package return thing and you hover over the link and there's nothing about Amazon in the link, you know, Good maybe. Trick. It, yeah, there you go. Could, yeah. be, could be a trick. To get to see it without clicking on it. Exactly. Yeah, don't click hover over it to kind of see the, the name of the link before you make the uh, commitment. If you've clicked and made the commitment, you know, then start thinking about maybe the information you're being asked for and wherever you get taken to, you know, does a credit card number make sense here? Uh, why would my social security number be be needed? Um, you know, why am I being asked to approve a, a funds transfer? So again, some of that suspicion around like, is the information I'm being asked for, does it make sense in the context of, of how I how I got here? Um, so that's that's a lot of it. It's like, we hear time and time again from clients about, you know, I was in a hurry, I wasn't really thinking I saw the email, I was checking it in my car at the stoplight, and, you know, I clicked on the link, and uh, it asked me for my email password, so I put it in, and then the next thing you know, there's somebody else in in their email account seeing what other information they could steal. Where 
are these attacks coming from? Is this a business that happens to originate from one part of the world, or is it totally random? What do you know about these origin points? Um, so, so it's not a, an area of uh, like huge expertise for me, but um, in general, it's uh, criminal activity, people who want to um, be able to collect information that they can then sell on the black market for money. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's a lot of uh, Eastern European activity like that, but I'm sure there's a lot that uh, happens inside our own uh, own country as well. And then I think there's also, although we don't see it here particularly, there's the uh, the kind of nation state hacking the foreign governments. Um, there's some of that in the in the news of of late. Ransom. I remember reading a few articles about companies who were hacked and then their information was held for ransom. Yep. Tell me more about this. So it's. Uh, one device or maybe multiple devices on their network uh, get an infection and um, the uh, the company or the person's data ends up encrypted. So you still have the data, but none of it is readable. That's cruel. And, yeah, exactly. The idea is if you uh, pay the ransom, you'll get maybe or hopefully you'll get the key to unlock your, your data. And, and do they typically want payment via Bitcoin, is that right? That's the usual, just because it's uh, difficult or impossible to, to trace and, um, you know, uh, easy to use for whatever. Whatever. Yes, whatever. <laughs> whatever. whatever. <laughs> more staff for more <laughs> ransom. Uh, is there a dream client that you'd want to work with? Wow, a dream client. Because um, I might know some people, is all I'm saying. Sure. What can make a client extra cool is if what they do or what they produce is like something I'm personally interested in. You know, so like if you're looking around my office and you see my uh, my helicopter memorabilia, like if there was uh, an IT problem, I could work on it, uh, Sikorsky or Command. That would be very cool. Let's go there. I walked into your office and it's a computer on a desk. A very messy desk right now. I mean, relatively, but a fidget spinner. Yep. And then everything else in this room is a helicopter. (laughs) We've got pictures from the view of a helicopter, your helicopter, I imagine, or Uh, the helicopter uh, that you control. I was flying. Yes, I was controlling. (laughs) I was going to say, business is good. You have a helicopter? Yeah, no, it's not that good. Uh, (laughs) Yet. (laughs) So when you think about with helicopters, they have to have some sort of, can you hack a helicopter? Uh, not the low-tech ones that I fly, but, right. uh, but, but uh, probably the, uh, the the big expensive ones that uh, the, the big companies fly. I'm sure there, there are security exposures in them to be contended with, but the ones I fly are pretty low-tech. How did you get into helicopters? So, you know, I'm, I'm an engineer. I love knowing how things work and, like, under, understanding how the pieces all go together. I had a chance a couple times at Travelers to... Uh, hitch a ride on the company helicopter from um, Bradley to New York City when I was doing some work down in New York, and it was the coolest thing. Uh, One night I came back on the the last flight of the day, and I think my car was somewhere other than where the helicopter left me, so I was waiting for somebody to pick me up, and uh, I asked the pilot, you know, could I look around up front in the helicopter? He said, oh yeah, come on in, sit down, here's all this stuff, and I'm like, okay, now I got to figure out how to how to do this. So I found uh, found a school and an instructor and uh, learned to fly. Was it like the first time that you were totally in control from beginning to end of a helicopter ride? Uh, so that uh, that took a while. Let's, uh, how long? Uh, 
couple months of lessons before I was in control of all. Uh, all totally accountable. All, yeah, totally accountable for uh, for all phases of flight. It was uh, like the first time I flew without someone else was just, you know, an amazing experience because it's like I was completely in charge of what was happening and, you know, being safe and watching everything and getting to where I needed to get. So have you ever been scared? Um, so yes, when I've, uh, when I've learned and practiced some of the emergency things that I have to know how to do as a pilot, some of that is a little bit scary. Um, power off landings in the helicopter, um, are always a little bit, uh, nerve wracking. And at the beginning they're, they're downright scary because it feels, uh, feels very unnatural, but after a while you kind of get to know what it feels like and, uh, it's, it's less scary, I guess. It is unnatural, right? I mean, when, I, when I'm in an airplane, I don't have any fear of flying. But I can't shake the feeling that we are not intended to be up here. Mm. This is not our natural state Yes, it's state not our natural here. state here. No, correct. <laughs> and so when I think about you in the unnatural state of being a helicopter pilot, also the work you do is this unnatural state, this, this world that we've created of cyber everything. I'm wondering if there are overlaps in being a helicopter pilot and working for Kelser. Being ready for a whole bunch of uh, different things that could happen and, uh, um, you know, being ready to the point that uh, even if it's uh, something pretty catastrophic that comes to pass, um, you have a plan already figured out or at least the the beginning of the, the plan. Like when uh, when I'm uh, flying all along the way, even though everything's uh, working fine and the flight is going perfectly, I'm always looking like field to field. Like if something happened, where would I go? Where would I put the helicopter the whole time? So always thinking about what would I do? Where would I go if there was a problem? And there's a lot of that uh, same thinking that uh, goes on here at work when we're uh, designing a new uh, network for a company, you know. What are the things that could go wrong? How is this gonna keep going? You know, how would we react as a support organization if it breaks? What's the first thing we would do? How would we get it going again? I know if you could predict the future of your field, you'd be a very rich person. Mm. But in the next era of technology and security and cyber attacks, what are you anticipating is gonna be a really big challenge? Uh, you know, there are all these, uh, you know, self-learning kind of semi-intelligent systems um, out in the world now. You know, we're, we're seeing the beginning of uh, car autopilots, for example, that can respond to all kinds of situations that they've been trained to do through uh, machine learning. Like, what happens if you couple, like, that kind of machine learning with software that's intended to attack or do something bad. And it learns what the defenses are and modifies itself and keeps going after something until it gets in. Um, or what if you have um, machine learning and self-modifying systems and software that can help protect networks and uh, keep things safe? You know, they see something is happening. They learn what it is, and they figure out how to self-reconfigure to, mm. to protect it. So that could 
could be something that uh, that I'm sure is probably happening a little bit already, although you don't hear about it. <laughs> it's almost like you don't want to hear about yeah. it. You know? Yeah, on one side you don't want to hear about it, the other side you wish it was already here. The, the <laughs> self-protecting, it'd be great if, if, it, if there was really such a thing that just worked that way. See, I can see, if I zip through to the way future when, when it comes to transportation, I visualize roads that are more like tracks, and we've got pods, mm -hmm. and you just holler for a pod, and you get in and it's comfy, or if you like want a certain kind of pod, like a sleep pod, or a work pod, various kinds of pods you can <laughs> choose from, a food pod, pod. so <laughs> many different need. pods. You pick your pod, you tell it where you want to go, and you get there, and then that's it. I don't know if that would be vulnerable to any sort of security. I guess it depends on how it's getting its messages. So there's there's one that I think about like anytime I'm sitting in traffic, especially like stop and go kinds of traffic where you're like, you know, why am I sitting here? There's kind of like no reason for this to be happening. And, you know, you kind of go forward and stop again. And then you figure out it's just like the volume of traffic. And, you know, one person puts on their brakes and it, it ripples back through the line like... Um, I'm sure we're getting to a point or will be to a point where uh, uh, cars that are together in a line of traffic will communicate with each other and like kind of move as one thing rather mm. than each moving separately and causing the, uh, yeah, the wave slinky. of the ripple to, yeah, the slinky ripple to happen. So I've seen the uh, footage from above traffic jams and you can watch you can the ripple. It. it is kind Absolutely. of amazing. It's actually. like a traveling wave that goes through the, uh, through the cars. Yeah. yeah. And to circle back to, you know, who you are on this podcast that is featuring people on the LGBTQIA plus spectrum. One thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately is in Connecticut and the United States, we've made a lot of progress. Definitely. And that is so cool. I, I was born in 1980. I never thought I'd be able to get married. And like you, around five or six, I, I had a crush on a little blonde girl in, in kindergarten. And I knew well enough not to say anything about right. it. And it never crossed my mind that I'd ever be able to get married. And now here I am. I'm engaged. It's the law of the land, amazingly, and that's great. One thing, though, that I'm curious about is how prominently should we still be talking about our sexual orientation, right? There are people who, you know, it's Pride Month, and we want to have a Pride Parade, and we're going to put the rainbow flag out, and the Capitol Building put the rainbow flag out. And we should talk about it, and we should keep having a podcast like this one. And at the same time, there's this great big urge to just be quote-unquote normal, to have our sexual orientation be almost irrelevant or as important as anybody else's on, on or off this spectrum. And all of it's valid. I'm curious as to how you feel about how prominently you think you should put this special place that you're in, in front of other people? That's a great question. And it's one I've thought about a lot. And actually, you know, one I really thought about before uh, deciding to, uh, to accept the um, invitation to have the interview. I really feel like it's still very, very important because uh, without the discussion that goes on through talking to people, I feel like we would gradually or quickly, depending on the uh, prevailing climate, you know, slip back to, um, you know, a less tolerant, um, much more backwards place. So I, I think it's really so important to, to be able to, to talk about it. You know, there may be some places or with some groups where it's 
you know, weird or uncomfortable to, to talk about it. And maybe sometimes it has to be toned down to be appropriate to the situation, you know, waving a big flag and all, uh, in all situations is, is maybe not the best, but you know, in almost all situations, there's, there's a, a productive way to, to talk about it so that people are informed, they understand, and, you know, we can continue forward progress and not, not slide back. John Stone, thanks for talking to me. Thank you. For more information on John Stone, his wonderful team, and everything else that Kelser can do, visit kelsercorp.com. Thanks for listening to Connecticut Voice Podcast with Kyone Wolf. If you like the show, subscribe to it. And please share this episode on your social medias. Leaving us a review really helps the algorithm gods float us to the top. Check out Connecticut Voice Magazine for more great interviews and photos. Sign up to get your free subscription at ctvoicemag.com. This podcast is always made possible by Connecticut Voice Magazine, of course, and by me. My production company is at kionewolf.com, where you can see all my other shows and goodies I've got for you. You can sign up for my newsletter. Find me on the Twitters and the Instas at kionewolf and on Facebook at Wolf Productions. All right, thank you so much for listening. Bye.